0: Have you heard of The Rise of the Nuns? So let me just be clear. This is not a new action movie starring the sisters of the Catholic Church. It's not N-U-N. I thought that was pretty clever. You guys are looking at me. Is is the rain that dampening your spirits? I worked hard on that. I thought that was good. Rise of the Nuns, new action. Okay, back the tape up. Let's try again. Nuns, as in N-O-N-E-S, as in those who list no religious affiliation. You may have heard, it was really last year when the report came out from the Pew Research folks, that the number of people who were listing themselves as having no religious affiliation had doubled. In fact, there there were stories about the death of Christianity or the death of evangelicalism and all this sort of thing. It was actually quite interesting. A lot of things were written... About it, actually, there were on the other on the other hand, there were many who came to the defense, you might say, particularly of evangelicalism. That if you looked beyond those particular studies or statistics, that you saw some growth among evangelical churches and the like. But it really got a lot of press, I guess, mostly for those of us who live in church world. Judging by your tepid reaction to such things, but nonetheless, it is a phenomenon. It is something that, when asked. Years ago, not too many years ago, most people, and still most people do, but a larger number of people would select Christianity of some sort on any of those surveys, and more recently, more and more people who may have been raised in church, who may have grown up around uh, Sunday school and, and vacation Bible school and all those sort of things that marked a lot of people's childhood, decided along the way that that didn't really fit anymore, and so they've called themselves people who have no religious affiliation or the nuns, Large, larger percentage happening. And it's interesting because in some ways it's understandable because religion, if that's how we want to term it, and that's kind of the way we'll start today, religion, well, it has a lot of things against it, doesn't it? In the name of religion, lots of things have been done that many wouldn't be very proud of. Lots of things are being done in the name of religion, even in these days. Things that are, well, on the news. Things that that show up. Things that kind of grab the front page headlines. And certainly there are many religions to take, but even if we just narrowed it down to in the name of Christianity, at times the history of that religion hasn't been exactly the most pristine We could go back to things like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or some of those times in history where in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity, things happen that we might not be so proud of. But even if we were to say, okay, that was a long time ago, what about today, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Things happen even in our modern world in the name of religion that, well, also make the front page of the news. And it usually involves those individuals that for some reason or another have decided Religion, namely Christianity, is a good way to, I have, what shall we say, pad uh, their bank accounts or, um, well, I can't say it that way. The phrase that popped into my head would be inappropriate in church world. We'll just say, uh, use it for personal pleasure. Is that fair enough? If you want to know what I was thinking, I'll tell you afterwards, and I'll just be interested to see. Anyway, sometimes, right? In the name of religion, there are these scandals. Even last year, uh, well, I guess it was last year, there was a movie out that highlighted one of those scandals. Spotlight, I think, was the name of the movie, which covered a a Boston Globe reporting team that dealt with some of the abuses that happened in the Catholic Church. And we could name people's names, and you would know them because they were in the news because they did this or did that. They got caught uh, having an affair. They got caught stealing money from the church. They got caught living lavish lifestyles and On and on and on it goes. And I think all of those things sort of fit together into this thinking that would cause a lot of people to say, if I'm going to label myself, I don't want to label myself by a religious designation. I don't want to label myself this or that or the other. I just prefer to be a nun. I can just keep going down this road, beat the joke to death nonetheless. Um, And and while that's the case, I I think all of us, even here, I mean, you're in church today. You're doing something, dare I say, that some people would call religious. There's something about what motivated you to come here. Even then, you would admit, as I would have to, that there are some things that don't speak well of Christianity. (laughs) They don't speak well of this religious faith that we adhere to today. But that's not the only issue. Because even though we want to point to the bigger things of these individuals that exploit religion for their own personal gain, you know I've done it too. Oh, now you're paying attention. (laughs) Oh, by the way, you're in it as well. Let me just ask it this way. Has anybody here ever prayed for your sports team? anyone anyone at all yes we're all tied i heard you why what are we trying to do we're trying to somehow like leverage whatever is this religious faith to our benefit to somehow you know okay dear god you know i like the team that wears garnet and gold or orange and blue or red and white what else do we have here i don't remember the hurricane Okay, And you know that last year the team wearing the other color, they had a better year than us. And you know they've beaten us for three years in a row. And God, don't you think you being a fair and just and righteous God and all, you should intervene on behalf of my team? Because I'm sure there are more Christians rooting for my team than that other team. Amen. And you know, we think, you know, that's kind of innocent fun. But we all, at some point, all of humanity, not even us as religious people, want to leverage whatever we think is out there. One of the places I see it the most, and I've told you this before, uh, is, is at funerals. I've done many for people that, that unfortunately I didn't know um, and had to stand before their family and talk. And, and there are even people, no matter where, and even in the, the larger culture, you might hear of someone's passing, and you might know of their reputation because they're a national figure, they've done this or that. And without fail the phrase that goes along with that is they're in a better place. They might have lived their life with no regard for God or faith or, or religion, but at the end of life, we all want to believe that someone we love is in a better place, no matter irregardless, I don't think that's a word, regardless of is it a word? Or is it not a word? I didn't think so. It is here. Don't make me say none again. (laughs) Regardless of what their life was like, even then, we want to leverage it. And and we see it. And one of the interesting things, and one of the questions that comes up when you're talking about religion or Christianity or God in particular, is the question of why does bad stuff happen to good people? Or why does evil exist in the world at all? It's It's a tough question. But, but I love the, the point that someone made, and I don't remember who, that you know what we don't hear? We don't hear the opposite of that. Like, hey, I, I got a raise today, or I got a promotion. Why does God let this happen to me? No, it's only when, you know, the opposite, the negative things happen. And, and don't get me wrong, it's hard to answer those questions at times. It's hard to deal with the reality that if God is all-powerful, if God is, as we sang to start our service, good, why is there tragedy? Why is there all of these things in our world that just don't make sense? And they get in the way. And so you put all of that together, and somewhere along the way, many people have decided that they don't necessarily want to identify with faith anymore. Now, as I was thinking about this, one of the things I had to think about is, who am I going to be talking to today? Because sometimes it's important question. Because I wondered as I'm talking to you today, I I know who I want to talk to, I know I'd love to have this conversation with, and my guess is the majority of you here aren't in that camp. I'd love to have this kind of a conversation to look at the things we're going to look at today with people who identify themselves as not religiously affiliated, who might have once been involved in church or church world as we affectionately call it around here, and somewhere along the line have decided it wasn't apropos to the grown-up world they began to live in. I'd love to have that conversation with them, and I'm guessing, though I'm looking at people that probably have some affiliation in mind who want to identify with faith, and who want to try to live out faith, that you know people, you may be related to people, or work alongside people, or be neighbors with, or have friendship with people that have the exact kind of questions and have the exact kind of thoughts that we've been talking about today. So here's what I want to say to start out with. Over the next several weeks, we're kind of going to dig into this idea and try to find out some things we can learn from Scripture to deal with what about religion, what about faith, how can we answer some of those questions. It's not apologetics, it's not going to be why the bad things happen to good people week in and week out, but it's going to be what can we see in scripture that might be helpful. So here's what I'm going to, here's like the application before we even get started. You have people that you know that feel this way. So I'm going to encourage you to listen today and to think of that person and to see if over the course of the next several weeks, you might either have that conversation with them or say, hey, come to church with me, which I know is a really crazy thing for a lot of people to do because church is scary and intimidating and all that sort of thing. But maybe invite them or or take some of the ideas and have this conversation with them. Because I think what we'll find is that too often as we seek God, we connect him or we have connected him to some things that don't actually truly represent who he is. He has been through no fault of his own and religion has been at times through no fault of its own. Connected in ways that don't accurately represent the gospel, as we might say, or the message and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to try to look at that angle for the next several weeks and see if we can't talk and connect some ways. And and I hope, on the other hand, since I'm talking about guessing a predominantly religiously-minded Congregation. By the way, I hate the word religion. You'll see I'll get there eventually. I don't even like the word spiritual because I always want to ask, and I told you this before, if you say you're spiritual, I want to ask which spirit exactly? Because there's more than one. I want to be a godly, Christ like person. That's kind of my, I like those words. So we'll get there eventually. But in this context, we're not talking about that. We're talking about religion and Christianity in the broader context. How can we connect what we want to live out and experience? And proclaim, as the message of Jesus, in a world that increasingly wants to kind of keep religion at arm's length. And so one of the ways we're going to do that today is looking at the story of someone who became a Christian. Now, not just anyone, actually, pretty important someone, someone who we credit with writing about half of the New Testament. Um, and so if you're familiar with Church World and you've been around, you know that's Guy we call Paul, or the Apostle Paul. Now, I talked about this, and I always, it's, it comes up a lot around Easter, but we, and this is actually, okay, here's a commercial. Are you ready for a commercial? Because like when you watch TV commercials, so today you get a commercial in the sermon. And it's not for that new movie, Rise of the Nuns. Oh, now you're catching up. Good. It is for... Today, if you want to stick around afterwards, I teach a little class, and we're going to talk about where the Bible came from. Because we've had this conversation with different people over. Why do we have a Bible? Why can I go to a store and buy a book like this that's bound and it says on the front, Holy Bible? Or if we're honestly dealing with the year 2016, why can I go on the App Store and get the version Bible app? Because how many of you have the version Bible app and use it more than the printed Bible? Just curious. Yeah, okay, So it's kind of the way it works. Same thing. Why do we have that? Why is there such a thing as a Bible? Well, we talked a little bit about it last week with Easter, and and it's important to note in this context is we're going to look at this account in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26 is where we're going to end up. If you want to turn there, most of the verses will be projected on the screen as well. See, I turn because there used to be books. If you want to turn there, is this how you do it? I don't know. Anyway, if you want to join us there, um, Paul is the guy we're talking about. He wrote what we call about half of the New Testament. But what he wrote were letters, like you would write a letter or an email. Well, no, we don't need email anymore. You would send a text. Could you imagine if, like, the Bible was written in 2016? It would be like 140 characters or less every book, but nonetheless, um, that's how it would work. But anyway, he wrote a letter like... He di- actually dictated, had a secretary, Manuensis, that's a fun word for today, write it down. He dictated this letter that he wrote to groups of followers of Jesus, or churches, all around the area. And what the letters were called, and the, the reason the books of the Bible are called what they are, is because it's mostly the name of the city or the person to whom he wrote the letter. For instance, we have the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. See, I wanted to say that just for fun. Um, and by the way, I say that all the time. It's a British way of saying it. Not that I'm trying to be political. But I learned that from uh, G.R. Beasley Murray in seminary and then went to England. So 1 and 2 Corinthians is just normal. But it's written, it's a two letters, actually there are probably more, written to the group of believers in the city of Corinth. So it was called the Corinthians. Uh, we have the, the letters of first and second or 1 and 2 Timothy because they are written to a guy that Paul uh, sort of was his mentor a guy by the name of Timothy so what we have are these letters that were written and as they are written by Paul or others in the in the first century, right around the days and time of Jesus, or shortly thereafter, they were seen as important, and they were preserved and collected and copied and shared, and eventually, years later, they were all put together into what we call the New Testament, which was then joined to what was called the Old Testament, which became what we call the Bible. But what we look at today in the book of Acts is, is a, a collection of, of ancient writings from around the 1st century, probably the, the mid-1st century, just 20, 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. It was written down by a guy by the name of Luke, who was a doctor, and who very carefully researched and recorded the things both in the book of Luke, wonder where they got that name, and the book of Acts, to show what was happening among these earliest followers of Jesus. And one of the things that happens that he records is this guy Paul, because he became such an important figure in the early church. He was a huge church planter. He started churches all over the world. That's why he wrote letters to him. And more than that, before he was a Christian, he was a very religious person. He was probably one of the most religious people you could have possibly met. He would have been obnoxiously religious. Now, his religion was Judaism, which is a wonderful religion, and with a name like Rosenbaum, you would expect me to say that. I didn't bring my yarmulke today, but nonetheless, wonderful. In fact, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book of Leviticus. Ooh, I, I heard that that murmur go through the crowd. Oh, been studying Leviticus, I can't wait. Leviticus is a fascinating book, because Leviticus is written in a time in history where the people of that era in the ancient Near East and all the surrounding areas to Israel looked at the gods as very capricious and vindictive who had to be placated. And so you, you made sacrifices or you did certain religious rituals to somehow get the gods on your side. And then we come to this book of Leviticus where God himself, the only true God, reveals that, hey, you don't have to wonder anymore how we can have peace with each other Here is how you can know, which was unheard of in that period of time, you can know that we are okay with each other by doing these things I'm about to tell you. When you think about Leviticus that way, it's a whole different way of looking at it. So Paul comes out of that tradition where they had these very particular things. This is how you have peace with God. This is how you make sure you and God are okay. And he upheld that tradition. He was committed to that tradition. He was ingrained in it. He was well educated. He went to the seminary of his day. He was training under a guy by the name of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee and one of the leading scholars. He knew his religion. And then something happened. What happened, you ask? I'm so glad. Let's see what Paul says happened. It says in uh, Acts chapter 26. We're going to begin at verse nine. We're going to begin actually in the middle. I should tell you what he's why he's telling the story. That might be an important part of context. Paul is telling the story to the guy by the name of King Agrippa, whose grandfather was Herod that had the soldiers go into Bethlehem and kill all the little boys, because he had heard there was a new king born. So we're in that, we're connected to that guy. So these these kings in and, and Scripture are all connected together. The reason Paul's Talking to King Agrippa is because he had been arrested. In fact, there's actually a little bit of of misunderstanding about him. He had kind of stirred up the crowd, and then the Roman authorities come along and they arrest him because they want to squash what seems to be a problem. And one of the leaders of the Roman authorities said, "Hey, you look like this Egyptian guy that we're looking for that's starting riots all over the area." Paul says, "No, no, that's not me." He says, but hey, since it's not me, can I talk to the people? And so they let Paul talk to the people. And Paul talks, and they get angry. I almost said a a word that I'm not supposed to say in church again. Um, They got upset. And they're going to try to kill Paul. And to calm the crowd who's chanting for his death, the Romans decide to take Paul and have him uh, flogged or beaten. And right as they're strapping him down to flog him, Paul says, hey, you're allowed just to flog me as a Roman citizen without proper trial? And that's when everything stops because he, had, he they didn't know he was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens had certain rights, and so they stopped the proceedings, and now we have got to figure out what's really going on. And so they send him to Agrippa, and Agrippa's asking about him because this is a pretty well-known guy. He's stirred up some trouble, and he's telling King Agrippa kind of, sort of a trial-type setting in some ways, his story. And he says this in verse 9. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is the kind of guy he was before he was a follower of Jesus. Before he was a Christian, he was that good Jewish leader and when this new religious movement from his perspective started, they were called the way at times back then, he was gonna stamp them out. And the only way he knew to do that was to arrest them, to try them, and even as it says there, even have them killed. His name back then was Saul. We'll see that in just a minute in the story. And and he's going around from place to place, particularly with the intent as a religious I mean, this is a good religious dude, right? I mean got some Christians here. You identify as Christians. Have you ever said, no, let's not go there nonetheless. But this is a guy who's committed to his faith. He's not slacking or lacking in the, in the religion department. He is into his religious practice. Verse 11, it says, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme in my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And it was on one of these journeys, verse 12, that I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. That must have been pretty intense. I mean, noon. Today, noon might not be too bright, but yesterday was a pretty sunny, warm day. Anybody outside at noon and look up? Have you ever looked at the sun? Don't do it, by the way. They tell you not to do it. Don't do that. Have you ever accidentally just, uh, oh, anyone? Is the sun bright? Is that fair? I mean, the sun is bright enough that just glancing at it, it hurts. Right? I mean, you can't look at it very long with intent. You have to look away. Even if you try, like, I'm going to ruin my eyes and stare at the sun, you could not do that for very long physically hurts. So the picture here is noon, the brightest part of the day. There's the sun, yeah, but then there's this other light. How bright do you have to be to be brighter than the sun? Ninety-three million miles away, and think about the amount of light it puts out, not just in our little corner of the world, but all over the world. Amazing. This this must have been, and you would expect, as we see a very memorable moment. Verse 14 We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, this must have been a shock to Paul, because as we just saw, he was the most religious guy you could imagine. Had been steeped in it, had devoted his life to it, thought with all of his heart, and with everything that was in him, that he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was doing what God had revealed to Israel as the right way, and he was trying to stop any other thought of what could happen. And this voice would say to him, Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, the goads, not really something that that we know, it was kind of a pointy spear-like sort of thing that you used on on your livestock to make them go where you wanted to and so it's a way of saying uh, you know you can't you can't fight this it's a this is a no-win situation why are you trying to, to do something that that can't happen it's hard for you to keep doing this and then verse 15 Paul asked or Saul asks an incredible question who are you Lord Saul Religious man, Saul, the persecutor of anything that would stand against Judaism, the revealed way of God for his people, is asking the God that he had spent his life learning about, who he had devoted his life to serving, who are you? Admitting, as it were, in that moment, have had the wrong view of God and what he wanted and what he expected. Who are you, Lord? As if to say, I thought I knew you, God. I thought I was on your path. I thought I was on your team. Who are you that would come against me like that? And the answer comes, I am Jesus. Jesus whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand to your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. So Paul, here's your new message. You thought you knew me. You thought you were on the right track. Now I'm changing your assignment. Here's where I want you to go. Here's what I want you to do. I'm sending you to them, and then listen to what he says, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's pretty big stuff there, From to open their eyes because they're, they're not seeing what they're supposed to see, to turn them from darkness to light because they're kind of groping around in the dark, and to remove them from the power of Satan to God. Now, some of you ladies were at Bethmore this weekend. Who all went? I thought I'd hear a scream. That no, was just a... Ooh. Now I hear, because I know someone that went, that she talked about Satan a little bit. And she made the point, am I right? you got to tell me. He is a, not only a liar, but he is a deceiver, which is way worse. Way tougher, because a liar... You know, sometimes somebody tells you a lie. You can kind of pick up on it. You can see their body language is a whole sort. You know, kind of have a feeling. Okay, that was a lie. But a deceiver, he has the idea that they're really good at it. That it's not just a lie here and there. But it's that their whole way of approaching you is to try to trick you and deceive you and fool you into doing something that otherwise you might not, should have, ought to done. And here is what Paul is saying to to turn them from the power of Satan, who has deceived, we might say, who has convinced you that this is the way to go and you has been wrong, has convinced, in fact, huge parts of our world that the right way to deal with God is through this religious system or this ritual or this activity. I, I grew up in a church, a Baptist church, my whole life grew up. One of the things, I love this part of our bulletin. I don't know why it was there. It took me forever to, to do this. And you, if you've ever been, like, I guess you have to be A my age and B grew up in a Baptist church, but some of the things on the bulletin, had asterisks by them. Did your bulletin have that? Do you know why there are asterisks by some things on your bulletin? There's a little note at the bottom. You know what it said? Congregation, please stand. So that was important. Now you have to know, when you get to this point, you see the asterisk, that means everybody stand up. See, here, you don't know what you're supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to stand. Especially like that song after the offering. You're like, do, do I stand before I make the offering? Do I, can I stand up before the plate goes? Do I have to wait till after the plate gets by my row and then I can stand? Oh, but the person in the second row stood up. I, I feel like I'm not a good Christian if they're standing and I'm sitting. It's like they're a better a better believer than me because I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, little things like that. Now I've I've been in some Catholic services which are are very structured, and and there's and I and there was no asterisk in the bulletin. I don't think there was a bulletin, but you knew who had been in that church before. Because the, the priest would say something, and they would just talk back to him. And they all said the same thing. And it was really odd. I mean, we I guess we did that. I said, God is good, and you said, all the time. Yeah, and some of you are like, why are they saying that? I didn't know you were supposed to say that. But in that and, then, and then sometimes they would just all stand up. And then sometimes you'd hear that clack, because they'd put the kneelers down, they'd all get down. Not like get down, but get down. You know what I'm saying? It's different. We don't get down like that in church. That's not how it works. But they'd all kneel down. And then they stand up again. And, and I'm just like, I'm a half a step behind. Because I, I was never sure what was next. You know, and there's these whole systems. And, and, and a lot of people have connected somehow the idea that God is happy when you follow the system. And they've bought into this system. They bought into this structure that you have to stand up and sit down at certain times. You have to make sure you have to say certain things in response to certain other things. That you have to perform certain rituals in the right way and at the right time. And if you do, you're you're in, and if you don't, you're out. And, And that, you know, I say Catholicism because we're Baptists, but Baptists, boy, do we have our stuff. I don't have enough time today to tell you about our stuff, but we got stuff as Baptists. Just look up Southern Baptist in the New... No, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Nonetheless, we got our stuff that we have, our rituals, are, and we and we connect. See, and this is our kind of human nature. We like the idea that if you tell me the way I need to do it, I'll do it, and if that makes God happy, that's great. And so we get connected to those ideas that I have to do it this way or God's not happy. This God is like those ancient Near Eastern gods. It's capricious and vindictive and just waiting, just waiting to give it to you if you mess up. Paul is saying in this passage, that's how he viewed God. That's how he approached life. That's what he devoted his life to. He had connected those dots. Now, Paul, the, the thing that's tough here is that what Paul devoted his life to were Principles that God himself had revealed. That God had said, this is how you're supposed to do it. Now, not the, you know, go from place to place and try to torture and and kill people that don't agree with you, but the part about how Paul lived his religious life, the rituals and things, the sacrifices, he had sort of some authority for that. That's in what we call the Old Testament. He had that. And now here, he's face to face with the fact that even that, was something you had to open your eyes and turn from darkness and turn from the power of Satan to overcome. So if that was the don't do this, the next part has to be the what is the instead. If if that's the negative, what's the positive? That's what you're not supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? And that's why it says so that they may. And this is the hook we might say in a lot of That stuff we talked about earlier, particularly those personalities and those individuals that have used religion for their own good. This is, you know, if you listen to me and buy my book and buy my prayer cloth and and send me money and drink the Kool-Aid or whatever it is, you do these things and you're right with God. But what does Paul say? Who had thought you do these things. I have this system. This is how it is. When God called them out of that, he said, No, here's what is the thing, Jesus Himself, I am Jesus, we started in verse 15. And as he reveals it to Paul, he says to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, turn them from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that they may receive forgiveness. Sins. Now you know why we're a Baptist Church and not a Catholic Church? Well there's a lot of reasons but historically there's this guy you may have heard of who was a Catholic monk and who had bought into the entire system of Catholicism and was committed to it as a monk you would think even a leader in it and as he began to dig a little bit as he began to read actually what he began to read was of all things, the Bible. What we talked about earlier. These collections of writings that talk about God and how he wants to be related to us. He began to read them and look at the experience and practice of his church. He went, something doesn't add up. See, Jesus says, what is it? What is all this about? It's about the forgiveness of sins. And Martin Luther saw in the practices of the church, not the focus on forgiveness of sins, but the practice of exploiting religious things in ways that God might have never intended. And so he nailed 95 theses to a church door and thus began the Protestant Reformation, out of which come all these churches that aren't Catholic in variety because he saw something. We have two, we call them ordinances. If you're on a Catholic background, there are many sacraments. I actually don't know how many. I want to say seven maybe, but I could be wrong. Is it seven? Did I get that right? It's a miracle. I remember something from somebody. We have two things. One of them is this the Lord's Supper. Another one is baptism. If you were here last Sunday for Easter on sunrise, we did that too. I think one of the reasons we grabbed onto those, of all the things that you might call rituals or, or, uh, or the like of the church, is because these two things focus on what Jesus said was the, was the key thing, the forgiveness of sins. Why do we baptize people? Well, because it's a sim- symbol of of what happens in salvation. That when you place your faith in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins to the point, it's like the old sinful you is dead and buried in baptism, and you're raised as a brand new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. It's a symbol of the forgiveness of sins and the new life that he brings. And why do we take communion or Lord's Supper or whatever phrase you want to use? Because in it, we, we use the... The, the bread and the cup, the symbolizing the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness or remission of sin. We have in this, at its core, we proclaim the Lord's death, the place where we find forgiveness, because He paid the price for us. So those are, are central to our religious practice. We don't think they save you, but they remind us of what Jesus said was kind of the, the key thing, Paul was going to be preaching, and the key thing he came to provide, the forgiveness of sins. And here's something you and I both know. You have never met a person who would say they never had to apologize to anybody. Right? Everybody said that. Everybody thinks they've offended some. I know what some of you're thinking. Not that guy. Like real people. that you know not newsmakers people that you know forget newsmaker how about you we all know there's a moment in our life where we have offended somebody we have done someone wrong and we have to apologize for it. and what happens when you ask for forgiveness there's a relationship that's strained and you go to that person and say I'm sorry please forgive me and what begins to happen the relationship begins to be healed restored I think this is so central to what we're talking about. Because if we know in the human world and in the person-to-person interaction, the offer of forgiveness and the asking of forgiveness restores relationship. The same thing works between us and God because Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all, at a time or a million in our lives, done something wrong were on we know God would not approve of. And so Jesus comes, and in this passage, sends Paul to proclaim this central message, forgiveness. So even those who would say, I don't have any religious affiliation, I don't want to identify myself with this group or that group, I want to kind of keep even at a, at a distance that would have to admit that as a human being, they know the power church, as God's people, as the people of of Jesus, I think we need to keep at the forefront what Paul was commissioned to preach, what Paul went from town to town, city to city, talking about. With the same passion he once persecuted Christians, he went out and told people about the offer of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ some of the things he said, and he always goes back to that. He always goes back there. That's what I'm about. I'm telling you about forgiveness. I determined to know nothing among you, he says at one point, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that was the central moment. That is what these elements represent. That is the place where what we all know is a need we have to be forgiven, not only by other people, but by God because of the offenses we've committed against him. That forgiveness is made possible. In the cross, not only is it made possible, but God took the initiative to provide the avenue by which we might be forgiven. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in that demonstrated his So today we're going to take these elements. We're going to take and past the bread, and we're going to take it past the cup, and we're going to eat, and we're going to drink. Not because it's the first Sunday of April, and our church, that's the time, the first Sunday of the month we usually do this together. That's not the reason. And not because, oh, this is one of those rituals we have to do, and if we do this ritual, somehow God looks and goes, I'm happier with you than if you hadn't done the ritual. No, there's nothing about that that we want you to get out of this either. Now we do this because, as Jesus said, every time we do it, we proclaim his death. And I need to be reminded of his death because he died for me. Because I am a sinner. that room, and over the next hours would go from agonizing prayer to a brutal beating and mockery to the cross, and their purchase for us, salvation. At what Jesus would say to Paul, I want you to go to everyone and tell them this message that I have come that they might receive forgiveness of sins. Well, here's a thought. When forgiveness is not at the center of our Christian faith, usually what comes out of it is control. What do I mean? This is what I mean. If if I don't say if you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. I usually say, well, you could be, but you've got to. And then I begin to tell you, these are the ways that you can know or be certain or have even a little bit of assurance that you're forgiven or that God is okay with you. And I can use those things, and people have used those things, and people do use those things, religion to manipulate and control, usually for their own benefit. But when Jesus comes and when the center message of our gospel is he has come that you might be forgiven of your sin and that you might be restored in your relationship to an eternal God, one of the cool things I love about we Baptist is the, the doctrine. we call it the priesthood of the believer. That means you don't need me to stand somehow between you and God because you have Jesus, who already did all that you need to be restored to God. You don't somehow have to depend on you know, what I tell you or instruct you to do or, or whatever the case may be to, to be right with God. You can be right with God through Jesus Christ alone. That's liberating. And that's the message